Hello. On the hottest day of the year so far, I went to exercise class without my bottle of water or my hanky. I should explain that exercise makes my nose run. Most things make my nose run and I can never be without a hanky. Years ago, I watched an episode of the hospital drama Grey's Anatomy, in which a patient with a permanently runny nose was diagnosed with a leaky brain. No, seriously. If my brain were leaking, it would explain a lot of my behaviour, problems. Anyway, I survived in exercise class on a cup of water and paper towel from the hall kitchen. But honestly, is this the way my week is going to go? Leaping from one potential disaster, albeit minor, to the next? Yesterday went so well too. I spent some time in the garden digging over a patch of ground that had got very weedy. Before I began, husband said, if you come across any bamboo roots, dig them up. Okay, I said obediently, though I didn't like to tell him I didn't know what a bamboo root looked like. But as I work on the dig it up and worry about it later principle, it was fine. The patch I was working on is quite wide, but doesn't get much direct sunlight. I've bought a couple of plants that are shade tolerant to put in, but I'm left with a big gap behind them. What I need are some shade-tolerant shrubs, preferably with interest in foliage. Relaxing after I'd done my bit, I consulted our trusty manual, Right Plant, Right Place. It's quite a large book, split into sections covering all sorts of soil and weather conditions, but nothing quite right for me. Each plant has one or more symbols next to it, indicating how much light it needs. So a white circle means full sunlight, a black circle tells me the plant is very tolerant of shade, while a circle that is half and half can cope reasonably with both. Personally, I'm definitely half and half. I'm fine for a while on grey days, but then I need a bit of brightness to lift me. But I can't cope with full sun for long either. I'm sitting indoors now typing this rather than being in the full midday heat. But in other ways, I'm also half and half. I grew up as an incredibly shy child. Unlike my cousins, and indeed everyone else in my family, it was hard to get a word out of me. I much preferred to shrink away and disappear into the background. While my cousins were putting on shows, I was sitting quiet as a mouse, hoping nobody spoke to me, or worse, asked me to do anything in front of others. I always felt slightly apart from my family, as if I didn't quite belong there. I was aware of this feeling, but couldn't have said I felt it, or put a name to it until much, much later in my life. I knew I was different, but I didn't know why. Even now I'm hard-pressed to explain it. I just know I felt it. But the rest of my family had no such problems. Talking, singing, generally making their presence felt, it came naturally to them. My mother's best friend went to live in America after the war, but came to visit us on a regular basis. One day, Auntie Dusty, my mum and I were on the beach, when Auntie Dusty suddenly looked puzzled. That's strange, she said. That man over there looks the image of my friend Bud. Give him a shout, my mum said. See if he responds. Oh, I can't do that, Auntie Dusty said. So my mum turned round and yelled, Hey, Bud! I've always wanted to do that, she laughed afterwards. It was Bud, by some strange coincidence, 
But if it hadn't been, my mum wouldn't have been worried. Unlike me. If I had managed to pluck up the courage to yell, and it turned out not to be Bud, I'd have crawled under the nearest stone. But there was no danger of that, because I don't shout. Even now I can't really shout. I tell you this as background for what I'm going to say next. I enjoy reading aloud and speaking to groups about my writing or about Zach's. I enjoy leading Bible studies at Zach's. I used to enjoy it when I led prison services before lockdown. Yes, I still get tense and nervous beforehand, but when I know what I'm talking about and I've prepared, then I can do it. I think this would come as an enormous surprise to my mother and those who knew me when I was a little girl. And what's more, people frequently tell me how calm and confident I sound. Now that really is an illusion, but one I'm happy to go along with. I think in these cases, it's that I have confidence in what I'm saying or what I've prepared, rather than in me as myself. When I think of that person, I quickly drift back into the shade. So that's what I mean when I say I'm a half and half person. I do enjoy being in the sunlight, spotlight, but I'm comfortable in the shade too. I suppose the question is, where do we flourish? The compliments and encouragement that follow a trip into the spotlight boost me, give me the desire to do more. But all the preparation that's necessary for a trip out is done in the shade. I am more relaxed at home in the shade, working away quietly, but I also need the impetus I get from being in the spotlight. It encourages me to strive harder, to make my voice heard, to speak up. I need that, I think, if I want to be the person God created me to be. But we're all different. Some can work quite happily in the spotlight almost full time. I suppose I'd include church leaders in that category. For others, even a glimpse of bright light would cause them to blink and hurry away. In the church I used to go to, there was a tea-making team, a group of older men and women who faithfully, every week, made tea and coffee at the end of the Sunday service. It was their acknowledged role, and when they were away, there was chaos. I would say at least one of those tea makers was in the blink and run away category. And she would shrug if commended and say, it's nothing, anyone can make tea. But the point was everyone didn't, she did. And her, there, the tea making team's contribution was often the most important part of the morning. But don't tell the speaker I said that. Like the right plant in the right place, we need the right people in the right places. Whether that's in sun or shade or a mixture, each of us needs to be where we can flourish. But because it's easier to see those in sunlight, there's a temptation to imagine that they're the important ones, the best ones. The others are just there for filling the gaps. I've heard lots of speakers on the verses in the first letter to the church at Corinth, where Paul talks about the parts of the body and how each bit has a purpose only it can do. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. For some reason, all the speakers I've heard always compare the preacher with the person who cleans the toilets, as if these are the furthest extremes. The speaker will say, quite rightly, that the toilet cleaner is just as important as the person delivering the sermon. Actually, I'd suggest slightly more important when it comes to keeping the congregation safe and healthy. But I wonder how many of us believe it. 
especially as you very rarely see the person who leads the church cleaning the toilets. Sean, the leader at Zach's place, is an exception. He genuinely serves the church in too many ways to list. But as I said, it tends to be the ones at the front, the ones we see in the light, who are the most obvious, and therefore, our brains tell us, the most important. So now we need to talk about Simon. No, not Simon Peter, but the other Simon, who was called the Zealot. Matthew, Mark and Luke all record a list of the first 12 apostles of Jesus, and Luke repeats it in the book of Acts. Simon's name appears in all these lists, but that's about it. He's one of the most obscure of the apostles, and he doesn't even get a mention in John's Gospel, poor thing. What is known about him? Well, very little is known other than he was one of Jesus' first followers. One of a group of people who travelled around the country with Jesus for about three years, who witnessed the miracles, heard the teaching, and was still there at the end. He was part of the early church and probably became a missionary. The word apostle literally means one who is sent. So Simon the Zealot could well have taken the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to other countries or other parts of Israel. We don't know. In his Gospel, Luke tells us that Jesus was followed by a large group of people, disciples who wanted to learn more, who wanted to listen to what Jesus had to say. Then in chapter 6, Luke says this. On one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. He spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called for his disciples to come to him. He chose twelve of them and made them apostles. Here are their names. Simon, whom Jesus called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who would later hand Jesus over to his enemies. If you were in a pub quiz, or maybe church quiz, and a questioner asked for the names of Jesus' twelve disciples, would you have been able to name them all? I wouldn't have. I'd have got Peter, John, James, Thomas, Judas Iscariot, and then I'd have been guessing, shouting randomly, vaguely, biblical-sounding names. Yet before Jesus selected them, he consulted God. He spent the night praying, choosing the right men for his purpose. And Judas was included. He was among Jesus' chosen ones, which is a whole different topic for another day, maybe. Jesus didn't just wander into the crowd and tap people on the shoulder, saying, You'll do. Yeah, yeah, you'll do. OK, you can come. Because they looked strong, or because they looked like they would be streetwise and able to find food or provide protection, he chose them after talking to God his Father. These men were all deliberately chosen for a purpose. These men would be the bedrock of the church that was yet to be born. An onlooker at the time may have thought, Ooh, Peter, really? Did Jesus make a mistake there? But he turned out to be what Jesus said he would be, the rock on which the church was built. And while it may be tempting to think that most of the work was done by Peter, John and James, as they're the ones we hear most about, that, of course, wasn't true. Every one of those chosen apostles had a role. Even the ones like Simon the Zealot, or Judas, son of James, not to be confused with Iscariot. 
just because we're not told what that role was, and not even all the research of the last two millennia has given us any more clues, they were chosen for a reason. They had a job to do. Perhaps Simon the Zealot was responsible for digging the holes for lavatorial purposes when they were on the road. Perhaps hygiene was what he was zealous about. We don't know. Presumably someone had to do it. Anyway, the point I'm making is that even some of Jesus' most favoured companions, his gang, his wingmen, were well and truly shadowy people. Not all of the ones chosen by Jesus were up front, say it loud types, but they were there and chosen and in the place they were meant to be, where they would flourish. Right people, right places. Are we in the right place? Thank you for listening.